2: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
3: This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network.
0: Hello and welcome to The Hash Live (laughs) in this big, huge venue with very bright lights. We are very excited to be here right now. This is pretty awesome. It's a little bit overwhelming, to be honest, just to look at all these people out here milling about and making valuable connections. I'm Zach Seward. I am joined on The Hash today by Ben Powers, Will Foxley, Jensen Assey, And Wendy O. Let's hear it for The Hash today, live audience.
1: Yeah! This is not my living room, it's true.
0: Amazing! (laughs) So as you might know, The Hash is all about getting you up to speed on the crypto news of the day. And we're going to be doing that today, even though it's a bit of a special format. So starting us off is Ben. Take it away.
1: Thank you, Zach. All right, so news of the day is a week-long saga, weeks-long, actually, that Seth Green got his NFT board ape Fred Simeon back from the synonymous Mr. Cheese, who bought it after he fell for a fishing scam, and it was stolen, which a lot of people can relate to, I am sure. but. Eventually, what happened is the hacker sold the NFT to Mr. Cheese for about $200,000 and after Seth Green publicly came out and said, you know, please, sir, give this back to me, he eventually paid about three thousand dollars to get it back. So Mr. Cheese was able to flip that one, but... Fred Simien, which is the star of a show that Seth Green is developing, using the IP, is able to proceed with that. So maybe it's a win-win in the end, but I think it illustrates a lot of the different questions that come and go with NFTs, and particularly high-profile ones like Bored Apes. So, Zach, what are your reactions to this off the top of your dome?
0: Just the fact that you described those characters with a deadpan was amazing <laughs> to me. So thank you for doing that, Fred Simien, Mr. <laughs> Cheese. Crypto really is strange. But, yeah, it kind of feels like uh, Seth Green, kind of like negotiated with the terrorist a little bit on this one, right? Like, he's like, okay, yeah, I'll just buy it back for a great premium. Kind of incentivizes some of that behavior maybe going forward, but such is the way with crypto. And I guess there's big plans in store for Fred. So, hey, if it's worth his while to do it that way,
1: why not? Mr. Cheese had a specific love language and it was money, you know? Like, that's just how it happens.
2: <laughs> Strangely enough, I thought that his love language would have been cheese. <laughs> money is cheese, isn't it? That's, oh. you know what? How <laughs> long one. can you keep that
1: this going, much. yep. <laughs>
2: Did you borrow Zach's new balances for this one? Because
4: it was a dad joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So getting everyone's attention to Zach's dad shoes here. So I love you it. Know, where they're, they're very cool. Thanks, you two. <laughs> I am really surprised that Seth Green paid to get this NFT back. I would have just bought another one. I know he developed a show around Bored Ape, but like Zach said, you know, he really is negotiating with terrorists. He has the money. I would have bought another one and been like, F you, Mr. Chief. You take that and run with it. I think what's really interesting, uh, Will, I'm going to let you talk. Just no, it just seems like
5: you don't understand the whole point of NFTs. So I want that <laughs> NFT. I don't want another NFT. I yeah. want that Bored Ape. I don't want another one. Can you <laughs> like put your mic down for a little bit? I don't think you're qualified to talk about this subject. It's-
4: Says Will
5: Foxley. (laughs) Yeah, I don't own any NFTs. Actually, I own one worth $22 right now. So, high profile.
0: Coil alert. (laughs) Cool. I think it speaks to like the security challenges in the space, right? right. Because I mean, like not everyone has Seth Green money to make this stuff go away, right? These problems persist. We've seen like a big time uptick in sophisticated phishing stamps that have attacked, you know, communities such as the Bored Apes in particular. So to see this sort of play out this way, not everyone has access to this resolution here. That's yep. something I think that, you know, from a big picture perspective, it's something that kind of like is plaguing the NFT space right now. And I think Absolutely. there's a lot of conversations in rooms like this and elsewhere about how to sort of eliminate some of those pain points for more everyday NFT users who may not have the best OPSEC or may just have a falling for a really sophisticated scam. So... Curious for your thoughts on that, actually.
1: No, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm going a panel tomorrow on NFT scams and security, so you can check that out to not death green. Um, but I also think it's important because NFTs have presented this really popularized version of crypto to people that are not familiar with it generally, and it's brought in hordes of people. Like, I covered OpenSea, you know, hacks and scams when those happened initially years ago at this point or whatever that was, and it shows that people who've had that happen don't even have like 2FA on or something like that. And so it's a really vulnerable population just kind of being dumped into the NFT space. And I think that's something that NFT developers and platforms as well as people on the flip side, you know, just general consumers have to think about because, you know, if you're not getting inundated with like phishing links related to crypto scams or hacks, like you're walking into a world of hurt just not having experienced those before because they can get, you know, super jokey and bad, but also really sophisticated and sometimes like tailored for you. And so it's, you know, something that's not going to be going away. Unfortunately, it's just like, that's the internet, but, you know, something to certainly be aware of.
4: Yeah, I think it's important to point out every time we talk about this story that Seth Green really wanted this NFT because he'd already started to create IP around it. And Bored Apes is a collection that gives all its owners full commercial rights. So a lot of the owners of these NFTs are creating IP around them, right? They're putting them in commercials, they're out there letting their NFT partner with brands like Adidas, they're participating in Hollywood ads or films. And when this ape was stolen from him, the intellectual property rights went to that thief. And I think that's something that the industry is going to battle with solving as we move forward and as more people get the intellectual property that is attached to these NFTs. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch. And I don't think it's the first time that we're going to see these crazy stories with celebrities who have these NFTs, they're creating around it for really big money and then it's in, in Mr. Cheese's wallet.
2: One of the things I have to say though is if you're going to do anything with an NFT especially if you have one that's high value just put it in a ledger and forget about it. Just do that. Especially somebody like Seth Green. I understand you want to have quick access to it, but why wouldn't you just put it on a ledger, put it somewhere safe and secure, especially if you're going to be developing an entire show around it. And the last thing I want to say, it's going to be very interesting to see how the SEC and other legal bodies deal with cases like this because we're going to see them pop up in the
4: court system.
0: Good points all around. Let's change gears. Let's go to the world of Bitcoin with Jen. Take it away.
4: All right. So Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z are launching a Bitcoin Academy for public housing residents in Brooklyn in Marcy community where he grew up. I think this is really interesting because I think everyone here in this audience and all of us on this stage know that Bitcoin has the ability to offer financial access to people who have maybe been forgotten about by tri- traditional financial systems. And Jack and Jay-Z are expanding their repertoire into Brooklyn. Now, Ben, you're from Brooklyn, so I'm passing you... I'm from Atlanta. Okay, you're from Atlanta, but you live in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think you're reading the story this morning?
1: To start with the educational approach, I see a lot of people like diving in if they have, you know, the wherewithal and the money to do so without doing that basic 101 stuff. And, you know, Coindes has a lot of, you know, written about this kind, educated and, you know, I've helped ridden of those kind of things in the past. And so that's like the best possible starting point. It's not like here's a Bitcoin go play uh, or like put this in DeFi or something like that, like all these different assets. And, you know, part of the things that we have at Consensus and the appeal of it is that you're speaking to a wide audience. There's NFTs, there's DeFi, there's Bitcoin, there's all the other kind of ecosystems here. So it's a really good starting point that that's where this is going to be going. And obviously, you know, Jay-Z getting back to the community isn't new. Doing it in this form with Jack in Brooklyn is a little bit new. And It'll be interesting to see if other, you know, prominent either artists or others from Brooklyn who have an interest in crypto could follow suit.
0: Yeah, I mean, the demand is there, right? I think, yeah. you know, there was a recent study with Charles Schwab, involved and found that, you know, 25% of black Americans have access to Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. That compares to like 15% of white Americans, right? So that's resonating with this particular community. And I think additional education there is fantastic because Bitcoin honestly does represent sort of self-sovereign finance, right? An alternative, as you mentioned, to existing systems that have disfavored large groups of people historically. So the fact that that is seeing an uptick among those communities and we're seeing education efforts like this to sort of further advance that cause, I think it's super smart and I'm curious to see what comes of this for sure.
2: I'm actually very excited to talk about this because I love to see people giving back. And when I first got into Bitcoin, I had no idea what this tech stuff was. I was like, this is hard, this is math. But then when you actually learn about Bitcoin, you read the white paper, it forces you to really understand how money works what is inflation, which we're gonna talk about. All these really complex financial systems, it forces you to learn about it and then to really realize all of the different predatory things that are happening. So the fact that we have somebody like Jay-Z that is doing this, I love it. And I think we're gonna see a lot more other people contribute to their local communities. And that's where the education starts is within local communities and giving back. And I'm very, very excited for it.
5: Okay, my only take about this is about Bitcoin maximalist culture because it's Jack Dorsey, right? So it has to be involved. Who is the profile picture for Jay-Z? Do you know? I think it's an NFT, right? It it is an NFT. I think you know. It is an NFT.
2: Ooh, I got a hot take on this. Do you? I do. Let's hear it. My take is is that Bitcoin maximalists get to pick and choose who they favor and what people that they allow in and what people that they do not allow in. And I don't think that's okay. You get to have a personal opinion, like what people you like or you don't like. But when you're going to sit up there and have this real ideology about we accept this, we only accept that, but then when somebody comes in with money that wants to do something similar that you want to do, but they also have different opinions about other things, it's kind of problematic to me.
5: Problematic. I hear that word a lot, but I agree with you here. I do think that someone like Jack Dorsey has a pedestal and he's able to use whatever he wants in that moment. Collaboration with Jay Z makes a ton of sense, right? right. And doesn't work with like title together also? So she like it's that. a lot of different technologies that they work on together and they try to break outside the mold of traditional stuff. So going back to title, music industry that's been dominated by a few streamers, a lot of these artists don't get the rewards they should get from their work. They don't get the royalties. Like you can make a million streams and get like literally no money from it. And so he wants to change that with Tidal and that's why they're working with groups like Jay-Z. I think like Kanye is part of it, so my people. He's very trendy even though he's a Bitcoin maximalist. It's odd.
4: Jack, hey, he's just really in with the cool crowd. This story reminded me a lot of Crypto in Context. Um, I've spoken about it on the show before and Isaiah Jackson did an interview with them last year at Consensus. And Crypto in Context is an educational, I guess, forum in the Bronx, and they offer crypto education to university students in the Bronx. The first question they ask them is, where's your nearest bank branch? And that's really kind of what makes the light bulb go off for a lot of these people. They're like, you know, it's really far. I actually don't even have access to this very regular banking stuff that everyone else has access to. But what I think is really interesting about Crypto in Context is they also focus on the educational aspect from a jobs perspective. So it's not only about investing and getting away from the traditional financial systems. It's also about, you know, getting involved in the technology. There are so many jobs, there's no formal education in crypto. And a lot of these people, if they're able to get out of the situation they're in through work, working in this really profitable industry, that's really awesome. And so I hope that we see that with this initiative as well.
0: That was a great segment. Thank you so much, Jen. I appreciate the conversation the back and forth. It's so very the hat.
2: So this next story. Well, first off, before I get into the next story, big shout out to Isaiah Jackson, Bitcoin Zay, for doing all of the amazing work that he does with a lot of different communities for Bitcoin education. But let's now talk about the word. Do you guys know what word we're going to talk about? Is it the the I word? word. Stop it! Yeah,
3: (laughs) we're going to talk about inflation.
2: So the CPI reports came out, and apparently inflation has rose from the month of April to approximately 8.6%, which is the highest amount over the last 40 years, and it rose up 1%, and the reason why we're talking about inflation is because Bitcoin was created out of the 2008 housing crash, and it was a form to kind of combat inflation, and we're seeing a lot of people struggling, especially the underdogs. So I want to ask all of you, do you think that Bitcoin can actually compete and compete against inflation?
5: Uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Bitcoin cannot compete at this point, but in the future. So here's the very vanilla take, but I think it's correct. Bitcoin is just not there yet. Bitcoin is not able to take on the dollar yet. The dollar is in everyone's pocket here. Hopefully, there's some desk coins in your pocket as well. But everyone is using the dollar, and that's not going away for quite a bit. We're hoping Bitcoin can do that, right? But there needs to be so much more adoption. I saw a number the other day it was like 0.36% of the world population has some sort of exposure to crypto. And of that subset, Bitcoin's even smaller, right? Because there's so many coins out there, so many NFTs and projects people are working on. So you have to see larger adoption before you're going to see Bitcoin be able to take on the dollar. And in some sense, there's even an argument that it's unsafe to hold Bitcoin until that happens. The way I've heard it talked about is the dollar is the best crack house on the street and you want to live in that house for the moment. It's true. Think about it. All these other currencies out there are trash. You don't want them. The dollar, the house might be on fire, but you can still live in it for a little bit longer. And so I think that's the situation we're in. Bitcoin's not even like they're still building at the end of the block. Like they got the foundation
0: down. But if you're going to sleep there, you're going to get rained on. Can't live in it yet. That was a hot take there. Thank you for that. I think that uh, the Bitcoin as an inflation hedge narrative is like had a rough go of it lately, right? You've seen inflation. Bitcoin has been puking its way downward. Even this morning when these numbers came out, it dipped, right? The idea that... Bitcoin proponents had proposed, especially early on and still to this day, is that, hey, this is a great place to store wealth over time. That may play out over time as being correct, but I think to your point, as for the time aspect, it's just not playing out. And of course, there's other macro factors at play, right? We're talking about interest rate hikes. We're talking about all this other stuff that isn't just inflation, right? It's not the only variable that goes into how sophisticated traders are pricing these assets. So, I don't know. That's my thought on it, but... I'm gonna pass it to Ben for his.
1: No, I think the macro aspects are really important here, right? Because this is not a buy like a one-to-one of money printer go burr, like Bitcoin is a good inflation hedge. I like, you know, we've been in a pandemic, there has been like supply chain issues across the world that has contributed to this, particularly around oil, and that's also exacerbated right now by the war in Ukraine. So there are these things that are completely, you know, uncorrelated to the US government and what it's doing, like worldwide, that are affecting how the dollar is starting to fluctuate in inflation rates. And so, you know, memes are great. Memes drive a lot of different economies in this space, but I think it's important to remember there are other things that influence this outside of that that could also be, you know, helping deal with Bitcoin in this way.
4: Every time we talk about inflation, I get so sad right? Every time we talk about it, it's the highest it's been in 40 years. The next week when we talk about inflation again, it's going to be the highest it's been in 40 years. And the people who are really affected by inflation are the poorer people, right? This affects the price of food. This affects the price of gas. The price of gas affects how you get work. This affects interest rates. That then turns into, can I afford to have a roof over my head? And the story is so sad because we used to say that Bitcoin was a hedge against inflation. And there is a solution and there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Now we're seeing that that's not actually feasible in the current climate. But Will, to what you we were saying, it sounds like we need to focus more on adoption so that we can get to a place where there is that solution.
2: I totally agree and that's why it's good to have people like Jack and Jay-Z to promote education and other people like ourselves that we do. But one of the things that's very interesting to me is that The narrative of Bitcoin changes quite often. In 2017, you were supposed to send it for payments. Like if you're not spending your Bitcoin, if you're not paying somebody in Bitcoin, then you're not doing it right. And now the narrative is it is a tool against inflation but we're not necessarily seeing that yet. But one thing I do think is very interesting is to see the type of adoption that El Salvador is having, at least what the president's doing, is kind of, I don't want to say pushing it on the people, but utilizing it as a tool, to say that. as a tool. And a lot of people will say this is risky, but at the same time, if you're a very, very small country, your people are struggling, the economy's struggling, why not take a chance and try to do something to improve their quality of life as opposed to sit and remain stagnant and watch everybody continue to struggle?
5: Why do we always get this wrong? Why is the media narrative always wrong? Like, Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. That didn't work out.
2: That was a Bitcoin maximalist
5: statement. No, it's everybody. That's definitely everybody. Everyone always jumps on to, like, the last headlines, like, oh, Bitcoin inflation hedge. But it's like, that didn't happen, right? So why do we keep
0: getting that wrong? I'm with Ben. I don't think that's not on us, man.
1: Don't get get out of here with that, bro. (laughs) Fudding
0: Coindesk. Stop fudding Coindesk, sir.
1: One time on the show, I made a price prediction. It was Bitcoin at 60K, and that's about where it ended up at this peak. So only one I've ever made. That one hit.
4: Ben is my paid group leader now. (laughs) Will left Coindesk, and all of a sudden, he's against the media. It's also worth
1: asking, like, how much, you know, we see this corollary between the stock market and Bitcoin happening. Like, you know, stocks across the board are down. And I also wonder, are they like, how much that speaks to the fact that TradFi has gotten involved in Bitcoin and is holding, is buying, is selling, is doing all this, is functioning, you know, within this ecosystem. So it's not just parking it and leaving it there. Like, there's activity going on in relations to other holdings, taking dips or going up or whatever else. And so, you know, I think that also complicates this narrative a little bit and does show a little bit of capture, you know, by the traditional economic structure in this regard specifically.
0: I'm still shook by Ben's epic top call. Wow, I didn't realize that we had we something like that. We got that on tape. Amazing. That exists out
1: there.
0: All right, we're changing gears. We're going to talk about Bitcoin mining, so I'm going to pass it to Will. Will, go. Let's talk about Bitcoin mining. I work for a mining company. If on my shirt, then, I don't know.
5: Understand the disclosure there. Washington State, specific County, Chelan County, is upping the tax rate for crypto miners by 29% trying to drive them out of the area because they're tired of them eating up all the electricity. So they're implementing a new tax law for Bitcoin mining and crypto mining specifically to drive them out of the area. This also happened in 2017, 2018, stopped during the bear market and they're picking it back up during this last bull market just to get them out of the area. Interesting little here is the fact that one, uh, the area um, uses um, balloon, all hydroelectricity. The whole Washington state area has gigawatts worth of power, which has made it a huge place for Bitcoin mining. Second part is they really care if you're mining Bitcoin or if you're not mining Bitcoin. If like you're using like general data processing, any other sort of business like AI stuff. They don't care if you're using energy for that. But if you're mining Bitcoin, they don't want you there. So they're trying to regulate the end use of energy, just like we're seeing in New York right now and other places, which is a very aggressive regulatory move.
2: So my first thought when I heard this story is to follow the money. There's people in power that are probably getting money or funding from somewhere that doesn't like that because it's coming in on their market share. Because we all know that this narrative with Bitcoin being bad for the environment or Bitcoin mining being bad for the environment, yes, Bitcoin does leave some sort of carbon footprint, but is it really as bad as they make it out to be? And there are positive solutions or alternate solutions to go ahead and mine Bitcoin. So that's where my mind goes when I hear stories like this, is who's paying who off under the table to make a big fuss and an issue about it.
0: Okay. I mean, that's some speculation. Uh, <laughs> shout out to that Washington County lawmaker or who, whoever is doing this. I mean, I think it's just notable that the level of sophistication around these regulations is reaching this point, right? It's odd that we're seeing this degree of detail being imposed through laws. I think most notably with the New York State. So the idea that this is something that has deleterious effects and should be taxed, almost as like a vice tax, right, is what we're seeing. Is an interesting economic development play from a small place here. I think, you know, stepping back, right, Bitcoin miners optimize for cheap power, right? They flock to wherever it's cheaper. That's pretty much the name of the game in terms of how the business operates. So, in these places with abundant hydroelectric power, upstate New York, Washington State, other places, that's where you see this activity follow, right? You know, you see it in Texas with this special power grid that they have and lots of wind power. You see it in Georgia, for whatever reason, ending up gobbling up a big chunk of the Bitcoin mining activity here in the U.S. So I think we're going to see more of these sort of like sophisticated local governance plays to either embrace this sector or say, hey, we want you here. And ultimately, it's a governance story. And it's going to be interesting to see who follows suit in terms of... Either attracting or dispelling this industry.
5: Now, we're in Texas right now, so we got to talk about Texas mining a little bit, right? I mean, there's a reason everyone wants to come to Texas. And one is the cheap energy, but two, honestly, it's a political stability. Texas regulators, Texas government, has been very, I don't know what the word is like, they've been aggressive in terms of courting Bitcoin miners. So last year, a year ago, China banned Bitcoin mining. And just a few weeks before that happened, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, signed a little note saying, hey, we want to attract Bitcoin miners to the state. And we've seen that develop where West Texas is now full of Bitcoin miners. Like in every small town, There is a lot of ASICs humming along really loud, just soaking up all the excess energy. And so what you have is political stability that enables businesses to operate. Because a lot of the businesses here that we see at ConsenSys are often new. They're startups, right? And they thrive in the chaos. Like that's what startups do. They thrive in chaos. Bitcoin miners like stability. You need to have really clear business plans going forward. Otherwise, you can't operate. And when you see states like Washington and counties like this county in Washington, or you see states, Like New York, they're thinking about this two-year moratorium. hasn't passed yet, but it might. What you're seeing is political instability that is going to drive out miners. And it's going to drive out other industries as well. So DCG is also a firm that operates within that New York area. And they were thinking of opening up an office in upstate New York and Buffalo. They're going to hire about 200 people. Because of the political instability with moratorium, they're considering not building there anymore. Bitcoin money isn't welcome. So why would any other Bitcoin-adjacent industry be welcome there? So it's to Washington's loss, it's to New York's loss, it's to everyone else's loss. Luckily, Bitcoin doesn't care too much. It can move to another area. And a lot of the industry can also move to another area, right? Like, Consensus used to be a New York event. We're in Austin now, because Austin welcomed all of this.
4: Well, is there only a certain amount of capacity, though, that each state can support when it comes to mining? Are
5: you fudding Bitcoin miners? No. <laughs>
4: I mean, it only makes sense, right?
5: No, there's definitely a cap. It depends on your state, depends on regulations, and it depends on the network as well, right? Bitcoin also self-regulates how much mining activity because you'll start making less money than you would want to to be operational. So Texas, a good. I mean, there's about like 80 gigawatts of power here. You know, that's enough to power everybody and have about 10% surplus in terms of energy for the state. Bitcoin miners are trying to soak up that excess energy, getting to like a almost a neutral spot for the state. Washington, I don't know off the top of my head what they're like, but they have gigawatts, like gigawatts worth of hydropower that's just there and available.
2: One thing I do have to say, and I know we got to go, but because inflation is so high and we're seeing all these issues and people are struggling to live, wouldn't you think that these cities, states, whatever, would be more excited to invite a brand new industry in that's going to create jobs and create revenue so that their people can eat?
5: Yeah, I'll answer that really quickly before we jump to the last story. I think the interesting thing here is if you look at the breakdown of inflation, energy is one of the highest hit areas for inflation. Oil and gas went up. Every time you're filling up your car, it's like five bucks a gallon, right? Same thing with home rates, right? Inflation has moved into the energy sector. That's causing mom and pops, normal people, to be pissed off about the costs that they're paying every month. And then they see this new Bitcoin mining operation. The thing they know about it is it uses energy. Zach, let's give it to you for our last
0: story. We're moving to <laughs> Ethereum land, away from the Bitcoin miners. All right, let's do it. So optimism is a token. It's a <laughs> solution. They make Ethereum move faster. So they had a token airdrop. They worked with a market maker, Wintermute, who is here. There was an accident. Wintermute sent something like 20 million of these tokens to the wrong address. They sent it to an address that wasn't supported on Optimism. Someone saw this and they said, hey, I can take those tokens. And that's what happened. So what this update is that we're talking about is that that person ultimately returned the majority of the tokens, took something like a 2 million token bounty, basically, after communicating with Vitalik and sort of illustrating the weird, wild world of how smart contracts can work and how often human error can intervene and make them not work as intended. So, this is a weird story. It sort of speaks to black hat hackers maybe turning into white hat hackers in the end. So similarly, like, it's kind of this gray hat hacker conversation. It's something we've seen in the past with some big high profile ones. And so I'm gonna throw it to Ben for his initial thoughts. On this whole optimism saga.
1: No, I mean like humans with their fingers, they're messy, right? Like they're always the weak point of security. No system can be like secure, period, because you have humans at the end end points that are interacting with these things in a variety of ways. And this also shows, you know, some of the issues with smart contracts and just, you know, how they can not all the time be exactly so smart. What I do like and I do think is important here is that this is something that is a little bit unique to crypto where you're starting to see hackers or people that are inserting themselves into these situations start to return funds and they claim a bounty, you know, this individual claimed about 2 million tokens, I believe, as a bounty for themselves, but returned the other 18 million. And this kind of also tracks, with a couple other instances that which we've seen this, this seems to be a little bit of a quicker process than like months sometimes of negotiations that have been going back and forth through like messages and transactions and other things like that. But it's also another trend in which we're seeing, and I think this is really interesting, other hackers out there in the world hacking hackers that are trying to hack exchanges or things like this. And yes, that is weird. But there are hackers that are trying to stop hackers from taking other people's coins. And they'll also take a bounty for their... But they're finding vulnerabilities, they're finding other hackers messing with those vulnerabilities and then going after the hackers themselves. And so it's a really interesting arena that we're starting to see, you know, this is exactly a gray hat hacker situation. But one that I think is interesting because you're turning the white hat hat on the black hats in a way and it's solely within the realm of crypto, which is somewhat new to me.
2: What came first, the hack or the hacker? It's a great question. Overall, this story is very interesting and one of the reasons why I think that it's very interesting is because we're, like when I first got into Bitcoin and into crypto, I was always taught send a test transaction and we have these really tech savvy smart people and developers that are making mistakes and I've made mistakes too, don't get me wrong, but we're always taught to send test transactions, so maybe that should be practice.
5: Interesting, they did do a test transaction in this situation. It was just the wrong address, like to begin with. She's kind of a bummer.
2: I've got nothing. Yeah, I kind of shot you down.
5: That's my bad. But still stands. Always do a test transaction. Use a ledger, like you said, the NFTs. Protect your coins. Protect your apes. It's good advice from Wendy. Pretty good. Put
4: the right wallet address in. Check the wallet address.
5: Yeah, you might want to do that, especially if you're a big trading firm. This story might seem interesting, but if you look at like the history of banking as well, this stuff happens in traditional finance just as much. So $15 million for some lost tokens from a trading firm might seem like, oh shoot, like someone's getting fired. Might not happen actually, because this stuff does happen. Like people make mistakes. Last year there was like that Wells Fargo, or it was one of those big banks, one of the big boys with like a Fed account. And they moved like, it was like triple digit million dollars. It was like a lot of money. I'm really blowing the story up, but okay. (laughs) It's a true story, do your own research. They sent money to the wrong place, they never recovered it. They tried to go through the legal system, they tried whatever they could do, but there is finality in the legal world, just like there is finality on chain. And so a lot of these stories, it does look rough because it's like, oh, I sent my money, it's a random contract, I'm never going to see it again. And that can be the case. In this instance, it looks like there were some people, including Vitalik, who got involved and that they got their money back. But in many cases, that is not what happens, and it's mirrored in the traditional world as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the blockchain world, for better and worse, you can see it, right? You can see the big whoops. And as a function of that, it also makes these things harder to run off with, right? So I think sort of this gray hat hacker phenomenon is like, okay, I'm the Poly Network hacker, and I just got like $500 million, but I can't really cash it out because to turn it into money, I'm probably going to be identified and dragged into court, right? So that sort of significantly changes the calculus with how you... After you've committed this hack, right? Uh, oh, maybe a two million token bounty and I return the rest is a pretty good deal and I can ride off on my merry way. I think that really, again, that openness, the open, the open ledgers here in this case, really uh, change the dynamic when we see yeah. these big headlines. But I'll throw it I think, to you for that. I one.
1: think it's also important too, and this is like <laughs> a pretty good uh, use case, and certainly it's not a use case for everything, but like human readable wallet addresses. You know, like not just having string of alphanumeric characters, things like ENS and others that are working to create these sorts of things. The same way like your IP address or like, you know, DNS routers resolve like web domains that you can click on but are really just something entirely different. And so, you know, we all got fat fingers, but maybe this is an instance where that should be pursued in more cases just because it shows that, you know, kind of messing up is not above any of us, even if millions fine.
0: All right, everybody, that was the show. And apparently we're doing some live audience questions. We don't know what this is gonna look like. We don't know what you're gonna ask. It's so a
1: first for us too. But, but we have
0: questions. We're game, we're game for this. So if anyone in the audience has a question, raise your hand, we'll get you a mic, and we'll go from there, okay? Anyone, anyone? Yes, we got- Here
1: we go. We got one guy.
2: And if you ask a really good question, I'll ask you one back.
1: Okay, that sounds good. All right, everyone's doing different stuff in this space. Everyone's got different things that they're focusing on. What do you guys think is the most interesting or cool thing going on in this
0: space that you're a part of enjoying? Wendy, I'm going to throw it to you to start.
2: So the most important thing I... Here, the thing that I'm most excited about I'm a content creator and I've got my eyes on everything. We talk about daily news. But the thing that I'm actually looking forward to the most is seeing the development and the growth of NFTs in the next five to ten years. And the reason why is the current market for NFTs is not necessarily what their intended purpose was. NFTs were developed for creators, for artists, for musicians, the underdogs, for people that got taken advantage of in very, very predatory industries. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that we see now, with all the JPEGs and all the crazy stuff that happens, it's kind of like growing pains. So me personally, I am very excited for the next 5 to 10 years on how NFTs, IP rights, merchandising rights, licensing rights, all of that stuff, will help to improve the quality of life of musicians, artists, creators, especially people that are in very, very remote areas that might not have access to a large audience. They won't have to move to L.A. anymore and get preyed upon. They can work from home and get exposed to a large audience and own their content.
4: It's the NFT corner over here. Oh. So <laughs> oh, stop. Oh. I agree with Wendy. I think I look forward to seeing how the communities that form around NFTs kind of become the next iteration of social media. I also kind of am curious about how NFTs are attached to maybe physical experiences and physical objects may contribute to the building of generational wealth and allowing people who didn't previously have access to owning high-value assets will allow them to have access to that. I'll
0: do a quick one. A more egalitarian DeFi. DeFi is still a whales game, but the principles of it are really powerful and important. And I think further advancement of DeFi, further experimentation with DeFi to get to, again, that more egalitarian state of decentralized finance, to me, remains really interesting. And the tension between the vision and the reality right now, I think, is also pretty fascinating. So that's something I definitely like keeping tabs on. I'll go quick, too. I think the most important thing that people don't look at is stablecoin development in
5: underdeveloped countries. So shout out to Paxful. Shout out to Useful tulips two awesome websites you should definitely take a look at. Crypto is not just for people in Austin, people who are flipping NFTs, people who are typically fluent. Crypto is for people who need money, who are in censored areas, who need access to permissionless peer-to-peer money, and stablecoins offer that for the first time ever. So I think something like Paxful, which enables local economies to grow through crypto, is going to be one of the most important in the next five, ten years.
1: Yeah. I'm the tech reporter at GridNow. Before that, I was the privacy reporter at Coindesk. So this might be a little bit predictable, but I've never claimed and probably never will be like a number go up, number go down, like financial watcher journalist. Different cryptographic and privacy and security techniques that are spiraling out of coin development and then being implemented in other things. So like zero knowledge proofs, a variety of other situations. They're not only being used to protect financial transactions, but are also being pulled out and then pulled into potentially plug and play platforms or things like applications that we use every day and things like that that can help protect people's data overall. And so that can continued development and that continued spiraling out, executing capacity increases is something I'm really curious about to see continue to develop.
0: Alright, we have another question right up front. It is our last question. What is it? Uh, do you have friends and family that you got involved in crypto? And if so, what was the largest obstacle you had to overcome to get them involved?
2: So one of the largest obstacles for me is I come from like an old school Sicilian family, like old school. I'm only like second or third, like third generation American. So my mom was brought up to like hoard money because everybody is like kind of nervous about whatever. And talking to her about Bitcoin, talking to her about crypto, she still has that old mindset. And when I explain it to her, when I try to get her excited, it's always very negative and like, no, I want my cash. I want my cash. So that has probably been the biggest challenge and then also, too, when I go, you know, when I go to my local boxing gym in the community center and I talk to the kids, that's also another challenge is their parents don't necessarily understand that. So I'm trying to come up with creative ways to educate them to where they understand that this is here to help improve their quality of life, but also how important self-education is as well. So still kind of working on that. It's taking time, but I think that we're getting close.
4: So my family is similar to yours, Wendy. I'm first-generation Canadian, so that for family, that was a great answer. When I am talking to my friends my network who aren't in the crypto space, I think the biggest challenge is trust in the system. It's unbelievable how many people just believe what they hear and what they say and they don't actually dive deeper and do their own research. And so finding resources for my friends and family that aren't like completely out there that they're like, ah, I don't know what this is. it seems very technical. I don't know what publication this is or who this person who's writing about this is. So finding like that middle ground that can ease them into their own kind of world of discovery is what's been a challenge for me, but it's been exciting because we learn together. I don't have a ton to add
0: here. Uh, you know I try to like just paint it as it is and if there's curiosity there, they can go for it. If not, not. Like, I'm not here to necessarily coax someone to do something that they don't necessarily already want to do. So, yeah, that's my answer to that. Yes, I have family in crypto. My little brother flips shit coins,
5: so I'm very proud of him. Shout out to Walt. Shout out the, to Walt. Uh, He's really bringing the family up. Doesn't
4: your mom mine?
5: My mom does mine. Love it. My mom is a miner. Did I say that right? No. No. I would say the most important thing that a lot of people gloss over is they get really stuck on the flashy things that happen every recycle. So NFTs or DeFi two years ago, three years before that, whatever ICO coin. Instead of looking at like the things like underneath that and becoming a value add. So the people who stick around are the ones who like take the time to understand the inner workings of whatever protocol that's being like supporting their favorite NFT and then adding to that community somehow, whether that's like you're a good writer, maybe you're good at coding, whatever it is, and then plugging yourself in. Those are the people that will be here in five years. Everyone else is typically in and out for a trade. They have fun, but they're not here to stay.
1: Yeah, and I'll go quick, because we do have to wrap this up, but I mean, God bless my parents, they can't even find my articles on the internet, so definitely not them. And I think that I use this as a reminder to myself, but like probably a year ago, and like Bitcoin was really popping, I had a friend text me and they said, have you heard about a Bitcoin called Cardano? And so if that's the point that I'm hearing from people who might not be super well aware of crypto, that just basic educational process of explaining what the heck this ecosystem is, is that starting point and reminds me that, you know, we're still early days of this overall process. So that would be my answer.
0: All right, that was a live edition of The Hash here at Consensus in Austin, Texas. Thank you so much to our audience for being here. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to our hosts, Wendy, Jen, Zach, Will, and Ben. And we hope you have a consensus.
3: You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.